join with me in prayer. Almighty God, as I open my mouth to proclaim Your Word, I ask that You would open heaven and pour out Your Spirit that uh, Your Word uh, might feed Your people. God, I pray that You would encourage the downcast. God, I pray that You would uh, cast down the prideful. And I ask that You would help us all to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We pray in His name. Amen. Alright, this morning what we are going to do is we're going to look at three seemingly unrelated questions that are raised for us in our passage. But I assure you that these three questions are related. So these three questions will be, first of all, how should we view this world in which we live? Secondly, what will heaven be like? And thirdly, how should you respond to suffering in your life? I want to put the passage in context. Just a very, very brief review. Uh, Romans 8 is here because of Romans 7. Romans 7, verses 14 through 25, Paul says, Your soul is a battlefield. You remember, I've quoted it several times. You don't do the very thing you want to do, the very thing you hate, you end up doing. Oh, what a wretched man, or oh, what a wretched person I am. Paul says, Your soul's a battlefield. So, Romans 8, verses 1 through 17, tells us how we are to fight the battle that rages within our soul. And uh, without going into this passage, uh, I just simply want to say that God always takes the, the lead in the fight that we are to um, take up. He is giving you everything you need to win the war. I'm real tempted at this point to review verses 1 through 17, um, but I'm resisting. I, I've, I've come to love verses 1-17 through 17 over these past few weeks. Uh, dare I say, well, Martin Luther said that he loved Romans chapter 3 more than his wife. Dare I say that I have come to love Romans 8, 1-17 through 17 more than my wife. And hopefully she will love me more as uh, I grow more like my Lord Jesus Christ and become a better husband for her as a result of Romans 8, 1-17. through 17. That being said, God takes up the lead. He has given us everything we need to, lead, to win the battle. And so we must engage in battle and we must fight using God's grace. So we come to verse 17, the first verse of our passage. And Paul essentially tells us that the victory is certain. He says in verse 17, as it continues from verse 16, that you're children of God. And if you are children, then you are heirs of God Himself. And therefore, you're also co-heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. And if 
that is the case, then you will be glorified with Him. You see that at the very end of verse 17? That we may also be glorified with Him. If you're a child of God, your inheritance is certain and your glorification is certain. In other words, you will win the battle. No doubting it. So what does Paul mean? Uh, I'm sorry, I skipped over. He says that we're going to win the battle, but then he says here in verse 17 that we must also suffer with Him. He throws that little phrase in there. What does that mean? Well, we're going to look at that after a bit. He... um, in verses 18 through 25, and I'm going to cut off verses 26 and 27 this week. We'll just look at 18 through 25. He uh, takes up this idea of suffering. And um, he says that uh, we will have to go through this suffering. And to understand this suffering, I want us to ask the question, What does this mean for how we should view this world in which we live? How should we as Christians view this world or view this creation in which we live? And then I want to back into, uh, after looking at that question, I want to back into this idea of suffering uh, with Christ. So, that's the question before us. How should we view this world or this creation in which we live? Many Christians view the world as if it is a sinking ship. This world is sinful, they reason. And what really matters is heaven. What you do here is not of lasting consequence or value. But getting to heaven is what's important. And so what we must do, according to many Christians, is endure this world until we get to heaven. Things in this world are, at best, unimportant because it's all going to pass away. And many people believe, because of circumstances being such that they are, that this world will pass away sooner rather than later. And so just like it would be foolish after the Titanic hit the iceberg, then to go and rearrange the, the, the deck chairs on the, uh, on the Titanic to make them all nice and in line after it's hit the iceberg, well, it would be also considered foolish to try and improve the conditions here on earth because the conditions here on earth are not as important as the next life. What this attitude does is it promotes a, uh, a defeatist or a negative uh, view of, of this world. And uh, this is a, an incorrect view as we will see in a few moments. And then the secular world takes a completely opposite view. The secular world says that the world is not like a sinking ship. Rather, the world is like a life raft. This world's the only place we've got. 
All that matters is what's happened is what happens here in this world. This world is our only hope. Uh, the secular person tells us, if we run out of resources, then what are we going to do? If we overpopulate the earth, what are we going to do? If we overpollute the atmosphere with our greenhouse gases, what are we going to do then? And so they view this earth as our only life raft. This earth is, um, for the secular person, is as important as our humanity. Because humanity is just a byproduct of earth. If God, if there is no God, if there is no Creator. You know, we evolved out of earth. In fact, there are many people who say that the earth is more important than humanity. Even though God says that humanity next to Him is the highest of all His creation. Secular man, many, have either put us on a par with creation or have exalted creation above not only the Creator, but also above humanity. Well, the Bible is against this idea of the world being a sinking ship where everything is unimportant. And the Bible is against this view of the world or creation being our life raft, uh, the only place that we can live and survive. Rather, the Bible says that creation is important. And I couldn't think of a ship theme. I thought maybe some of you might be able to come up with a with a with a ship theme to keep um, with my ship metaphors. But um, I simply the the point simply is is that creation is important. Everything that is created is important because God is a sovereign God. He is in control of all things. He's involved in all things. And so everything is important. So when we, as Christians, how do we treat the world? Well, we're not supposed to litter because it's God's world. We're not supposed to pollute. Not because it's all we've got, but we're not supposed to pollute because it's God's world and we're to honor um, honor Him in His world. It all belongs to God. And so we are to make the world more beautiful. We bring God glory when we seek to make the world more beautiful. The study of aesthetics, the study of beauty, the study of value, the study of art, those things have been shamefully neglected by Christians because we have this otherworldly view. We live here in this world. God calls us to take dominion over our world because we are the rulers of this earth underneath God's ultimate rulership. And so this world is to be viewed as God's world. We are to use the resources wisely, but we are to use them. We're to exercise dominion over our creation. We're to enjoy this world and not just try to escape from it. But we are also to recognize that this world is broken, that it is 
very broken. Look at verses 20 through 22. Paul says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And so he says there's a futility. Verse 20. He says that there is a bondage to corruption. Verse 21. He says there's a groaning because of the pains of childbirth. In other words, this world is broken. He says it was subjected to futility. Uh, passive voice. Well, who subjected it to futility? God subjected it to futility. God subjected it to this broken uh, condition. When Adam and Eve sinned, all creation cracked apart and became severely damaged. So Genesis 3, God said, Cursed is the ground because of you, as He was speaking to Adam. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And this is because the world participated in the fall of mankind. When Adam and Eve fell, not only did we fall along with them, but also all, all creation was subjected to futility. All creation became in bondage to corruption because of our sin. I don't know if you remember a couple of weeks ago when Dr. Krabendam was here, he mentioned that uh, in passing that he doesn't even step on an ant if he can help it. Because uh, all creation, those ants, the reason they're going to die one day is because of our sin. And so he says, I, should, I don't want to give them uh, double punishment for our sin. And so I've been to, to Uganda. I've been to his house. There is an anthill that's probably four feet high, about 30 or 40 feet from his front door. And it's, it's all anthill. And I was just walking through the house. You'll see ants strolling through and I watched Dr. Krabendam step over them. You know, if I were them, I'd be doing a dance to see how many of them I could kill. And he says, it's been subjected to futility. It's in bondage to corruption because of our sin. Well, I don't share completely his, uh, his um, conviction, especially when it comes to, to creepy, cawly things or, or things that slither like snakes or, or things like that. But uh, that was, I, I noted that he mentioned that in the, um, in the sermon a couple of weeks, weeks ago. But this world that we live in is broken. You know, the leading aspect for the second law of thermodynamics is that there's a gradual decline into disorder. And I think that relates back to the fact that this world is broken. Things break down and fall apart. Our bodies break down and fall apart. You know, we get older and then we die. And then 
beyond the the brokenness and um, and the bondage to corruption. There's also the destructive results that are of sin that are always present. There are wars that take place because human beings created in God's image hate each other and fight against each other and destroy. And so there's all these our world continually is in a state of corruption. But this means that in all of life there's suffering. Because this world is broken, this life is going to have suffering as a part of it. There's no way that any of us can escape it. You know, I, I see news reports every now and then of the super rich and they're building these Homes where they have everything, even safe houses, and uh, and and everything that they can possibly do to escape any kind of suffering. You know, they want their world to be Disney World, and that's an idolatry to try and escape suffering. We live in a broken world. There's going to be suffering in our world. If you're trying, if your aim in life is to escape suffering, check your heart. See if there's an idolatry there where you're trying at all costs to live a pleasant and happy life um, and escape from that suffering. God said, you try and earn a living, the ground's going to produce thorns and thistles. You know, yesterday was the beginning of college football, so I watched my uh, watched my Bulldogs win. And uh, but I also saw plenty of commercials. The commercial one after another after another. Live life as if it were a party. So it's idolatrous to try and escape suffering as your end all in life. It's also idolatrous uh, for people to to embrace suffering as a way of life. You know, when people have so much suffering in their life, they embrace it. And um, maybe insensibly will say, I can't be happy, therefore I have a right to be unhappy. And their life, instead of becoming one long party, becomes one long pity party. And I'm not addressing depression in saying this. I do have thoughts about depression. If you want to come to me personally, we can talk about those things. But I'm not talking about uh, depression at all. I'm talking about people who are discontent with their circumstances, discontent with their physical condition, discontent with their physical appearance, and they don't feel like they can change, so they embrace it. And there's an idolatry attached to that kind of response. It's it's this idea of saying, if only I had whatever... If I had this, but since I don't, therefore I will not be happy. There's an idolatry embedded in that thought. But this world 
in this world there's going to be suffering. We should recognize it. This world is broken. Sin is present. This world is subjected to futility. But the good news is, this world will be redeemed. The creation as we know it and the earth that we live on will not fully and completely be annihilated so that it will no longer exist anymore. Rather, it will be renewed as our eternal home. There will be cataclysmic events, surely, that will bring this world to an end as we know it. But where everything that is evil will be wiped out and then cleansed by fire, according to 2 Peter 3, it will not cease to exist altogether. This creation will certainly pass away. Uh, Revelation 22, verse 1 tells us this. 1 Peter 3.10 uses that type of language. But that does not mean in passing away that it will vanish forever. Like a caterpillar. A caterpillar passes away when it emerges as a butterfly. There's a real passing away, but there's also a real continuity. Or, as I'm going to argue in a few moments, our bodies pass away. Our bodies, in all likelihood, will be completely destroyed. But that does not mean that they will vanish forever. There will be a real resurrection of our bodies at the end of history. And at the end of history, connected with our resurrection, this world will pass away by fire, but it will be renewed. Um, I want to give four reasons for expecting that the creation will be renewed or be redeemed. Uh, First of all, verses 18 and 19 says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. This creation has a hope. It, will, it has a hope that it's not going to pass away or die away, vanish away completely, but it will be changed. The Apostle Paul pictures creation like on his tiptoes, um, leaning toward us, waiting for our redemption because it knows that its redemption is coming along with ours, that its renewal is coming along with our resurrection. It's going to be released from its bondage. This bondage to decay. This bondage to disasters like Hurricane Hermine. Like that earthquake that just took place in Oklahoma. It's going to be released from its diseases like Zika. It will be released from all its pains, all its disruptions. All those things will pass away. The curse of futility in verse 20, is a temporary condition for the world. Creation is not appointed for annihilation, but looks forward in hope to its restoration. Romans 8.21 
says that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So the creation looks forward to being liberated from its bondage to corruption along with us. We are free from slavery to sin, past tense. We saw that in verses in chapter 8, verses 2 through 4. But Paul's talking about a future condition where we will be freed. We will be freed in glory as God's children. Remember how last week the, the Apostle Paul said in verse 16, um, verses 15 and 16, that we are children of God now. But in verse uh, 21, he is talking about our future adoption, our future glory as children of God. And so there's a now, but there's also a not yet that he's speaking about. And what he's saying is that when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, we will be completely and fully who we are in Christ. We are children now, but we receive all the full inheritance of what that means as children. No more sin. No more pain. No more death. No more crying. No more unhappiness. No more suffering, period, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. And when our bodies are raised from the grave, incorruptible. And along, right along with us, creation is also freed from its bondage to corruption and is fully and completely restored. And then look at verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And so what Paul does is he connects the redemption of our bodies with the, um, with the birth pains of a mother. I'm sorry, he, he, uh, the upheavals and disasters and diseases of the world, I'm sorry, he, create, he connects that with the birth pains of a mother. In other words... What's about to happen when a mother is going through the birth pains? She's about to bring forth a new child. And Paul is saying that this creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth, waiting for a rebirth, waiting for a restoration. Our creation is like a mother bringing forth a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells and where God rules over His perfected, sin-free creation when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. And then look at verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And so Paul connects the redemption of our bodies with the restoration of our of creation. When our bodies are resurrected, the entire creation is remade. When Paul says that we are children of God now, when Paul says that we um, have the earnest of the Spirit, or when he says we have the first fruits of the Spirit, he's saying that the Holy Spirit has made our heart His home. And because He has made 
our heart His home. He has sealed us with an indelible seal, guaranteeing that we will receive the full inheritance as children of God. And we will receive that when our bodies rise in glory from the dead. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, Paul says, "...having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession." Well, when we received the, the Spirit, we were already redeemed. But when he's talking here in verse 14 of Ephesians 1 about waiting for the redemption, he's talking about our resurrected bodies. So, the Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of, of those who are God's possession to the praise of His, of His glory. 2 Corinthians 5.5 5, Now the One who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. In other words, if you are in Jesus Christ, you have the Spirit. He has made your heart His home. And He is a deposit guaranteeing your resurrection and glorified body and every promise and benefit of the Gospel that's in Jesus Christ will be yours. The full benefits of adoption will be yours in the future. So verse 23 says we've already been adopted, but then we are to await for the completion of our adoption. Our bodies will be freed from temptations to sin. Think about that in relation to the battlefield of our souls that Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 7. Our bodies will be restored. They will be made new. They will be free to love God without hindrance. And so will all creation. So then the question is, in light of this, what will heaven be like? Or rather, heaven after it's restored. uh, Or the earth after it is restored. The new heaven and new earth. What will that look like? Well, I think Paul is saying here that it will look a lot like earth, only better. Um, our bodies will be resurrected. And so our bodies will be like, like this body, only better, perfected, glorified. You say, well, wait a minute. What if I'm a Christian and I'm out in the Gulf and my boat sinks and I drown and fish eat my flesh. And then a fisherman comes along and eats that fish and my DNA is absorbed in somebody else who eats the fish that the fisherman caught. You know, how can our bodies, how can God say that our bodies are going to be put back together and resurrected? Well, it's going to happen. If you're buried in a coffin and Worms eat our flesh. And then we use those worms to go fishing and start the process. Being a little morbid here. Or 
if you are cremated and have your ashes spread about, or if you were in a Christian in one of the Twin Towers on September 11th and they were not able to find your body because it was pulverized into literally a million pieces, God will be able to unsort out however He's going to do it and our bodies, they will not be weak with this flesh, but it will still be our bodies. In other words, our bodies will pass away, but there's a continuity, a real continuity. Our bodies will be resurrected. And so we'll be able to recognize each other. In other words, we're not going to be like angels fluttering about, uh, flying about the clouds and things like that. The world is going to look like this world, only better, perfect. Our bodies are going to look a bit like us, only better, perfect. What exactly does that mean for a child who dies young? I don't know. What about a person who dies older? I don't know. But I know that there will be a real continuity because there will be a real resurrection of our bodies on the last day. What does that mean for our world? Well, for you mountain people, I think that there will probably be mountains and lakes and woods. For those of you who like the beach, there will probably be beaches. Um, and seas and things like that. What about animals? Well, I think probably so. I don't think Maxie, our dog, will make it up to heaven. But I think there will be dogs and cats and animals in heaven. Certainly the pleasure that we get from animals will, will be there in, in heaven or in the new earth, the renewed earth. So then the last question is, how should you respond to suffering in your life? Well, basically, what we do is we groan. We groan because of the presence of sin. Look at verse 23. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly, as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We groan because of the presence of sin. What a wretched man that I am. I'll be crying that till the day I die. And we groan also because we know that there's something better awaiting us. Wherever you are in your circumstances, whatever suffering you are going through, whether it is physical or emotional suffering, if you are in Christ, your best days regardless of your age, lie ahead of you. Because we know that our bodies will be redeemed. Wherever you are in your circumstances, all your best days lie ahead of you. And so we groan, longing for that um, redeemed body. And then... We also not only groan, we also we wait. Look at verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is not seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait. 
We wait in patience. We wait in faith. We wait in expectation. Because we know that our best days are ahead of us. That's why Paul says in Romans, at the end of Romans 8, um, in verse 32 and 33, he essentially says, Christ died for us. How will He not also along with Him graciously give us all things? If Christ died for us, we can wait in hope. We can wait in faith knowing that our best days are ahead of us. Paul's writing to some Roman Christians. They were going to suffer tremendously. You know how Emperor Nero claimed that the Christians had set Rome on fire and how he put them on, on, on poles and covered them with tar and set them on fire. They suffered. But even though that suffering was ahead of them, their best days still were uh, ahead of that. And so we wait in hope. We wait in faith. We also, he says, we wait in patience. I wanted to read in conclusion C.S. Lewis. He says, God will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, His own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful. And he's talking about the process now. But that's what we are in for. Nothing less. He meant what He said. You have a glorified body waiting for you. And we will live in a glorified and renewed creation. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we look to You. I know this is a difficult passage of Scripture. Um, For many years, I read it and never fully understood it. not even sure if I fully understand it now. But Lord, I do know, as Paul said in verse 18, that I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us and in us. Lord, help us to wait patiently. Help us to wait in faith. Help us to wait in hope. Help us as we groan inwardly, longing for the redemption of our bodies, the full rights and privileges that are ours as sons and daughters of the Lord Jesus Christ, or of God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in His name. Amen.